One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, history friends, patrons all, to 1956, episode 1.9. Last time we brought our coverage of the situation in Poland to a kind of conclusion. Throughout the focus on Poland, we repeatedly referenced the fact that the situation in Hungary was somehow different, and that Budapest endured a vastly different experience to that of Warsaw. There are several explanations for why this was the case, but in this episode, we begin to unpack the Hungarian experience. For those that feel unconnected to Hungary, perhaps even disinterested in what went on there, I can assure you it holds a particularly fascinating quality. As revolutions against the Soviets go, perhaps only the Prague example in 1968 comes close to what occurred in this troubled section of the Soviet Empire. And even then, the Hungarians suffered more terribly, and had been suffering more terribly, up to the point in 1956 where many decided enough was enough. This episode will serve as a great introduction to Hungary between 1945 to 56 then, as we introduce you to this young nation-state and its leaders that would take part in their own way in what was to come. Hungary is quite similar to Poland in a number of ways, partitioned into oblivion by its neighbours in the 1520s. The once mighty medieval kingdom remained a troubled portion of the Habsburg patrimony for some time, until in 1867, Vienna was forced to transform its compact with Budapest and form the dual monarchy. After that, you had the familiar road to the First World War and then a mirror image of the Polish experience. From 1920, Hungary, like Poland, emerged in Eastern Europe with a historical memory, great plans and bitter scores, which contributed to its terrible contributions towards the Second World War, where its forces waged war on the Axis side. Since Hungary lost the war, and it was unfortunate enough to sit on the side of the enemy camp when the post-war arrangement was being drawn up, Hungarians, regardless of political or ideological leaning, could expect little choice in their own destiny. Much like the Polish case, their experiment in independence was to be snuffed out once again, replaced with a cruel dictatorship the likes of which many Hungarians had never known before. Just as it proved so unpalatable to the Poles and to the Czechs, the Hungarians would in time rage against this machine and search for something better which all Hungarian people, all Magyars, could believe in. This journey was as inspiring as it was tragic, so I hope you'll join me for it, and a huge thanks to you all again for making it possible. Without any further ado, I will now take you to post-war Hungary in late 1945. 
A well-rehearsed Hungarian saying would later recount that We have had three great tragedies in Hungary. The Tartar conquest in the 13th century, the 150-year Turkish occupation, and the Soviet liberation. Indeed, in the post-war arrangement of 1945, the Hungarians were like the unwanted black sheep of the collection. Propaganda in the West and the experience of history put it that Hungary had twice chosen the wrong side in the two world wars. Far from a plucky victim, now in the path of Soviet vengeance, Hungary was presented as among the chief troublemakers of Europe. As an example of this feeling, it's worth noting the reaction of Harold Nicholson, a British MP for the Conservatives, when he learned in late 1944 that Budapest was about to come under siege by the approaching Red Army. Nicholson remembered, When I learned that the Russian armies were within cannon range of Budapest, I was conscious of delight, which I felt to be neither virtuous nor sane. My reason tells me that the Hungarians found themselves in a difficult position, and that it would have been hard indeed for them to maintain a stubborn neutrality. They were forced into the war by geographical necessity, and by a burning resentment against the Treaty of Trianon. The fact is that, since the day more than a thousand years ago, when Arpad first entered Hungary, the Magyars have done much harm and little good in Europe. My satisfaction may be due to the quite rational feeling that, this time, the Hungarians will not be able to disturb the peace. Since 1919, Hungary had been led by Miklos Horty, who rose to prominence as the regent after putting down a short-lived communist state in Hungary amidst the turmoil of post-World War I Europe. The Treaty of Trianon, referenced in the aforementioned quote from Harold Nicholson, was the deeply flawed solution to the Hungarian problem. Much like Versailles sowed lasting discontent in Germany, Trianon stripped Hungary of several of its most important cities, left over three million ethnic Hungarians outside of the new borders, and gave vast tracts of land to Romania, Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia. Horty's foreign policy aims in the interwar years reflected this bitterness, as Hungary rarely formed solid relationships with its neighbours, who themselves lived in constant fear of Hungary's irredentist ambitions. I have met Hungarians who, to this day, hold a degree of resentment against Romanians above all for taking the Transylvania region away. Hungary, according to the 1921 Treaty of Trianon, was only a third of its size, in terms of land, that its Kingdom of Hungary inception had been under the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But of course, in the latter case, great contradictions and flaws had been bolted into that system for the sake of Habsburg stability and strategic interest, rather than because Hungarians actually had any national right to cling to Prague, for example. Considering Hungary's resentments and its geographic position, it should come as little surprise that Horty sided with the Nazis, being a far-right, vehemently anti-communist leader himself. Hungary's inbuilt record of anti-communism coloured Budapest's relations with the Russians, and inured a deeply ingrained sense of hostility towards all things Soviet, communist and Russian in the interwar and war years. If we dispense with the application of historical blame, then it is not hard to see how the sense of unfairness and victimisation compelled Hungarians to enthusiastically support the fascist Arrow Cross, which collaborated zealously with the Nazis, most infamously to murder 550,000 of the country's 700,000 Jews by the end of the war. 
To demonstrate their fealty to the fascist cause, Horty felt compelled to toe the Nazi line with horrific consequences. To those that did welcome the Soviets into Hungary as liberators following the bloody and bitter siege of Budapest, which concluded in February 1945, this feeling of welcome did not and could not last. The great Hungarian novelist Sandor Marai would later recall, The Russian who dropped by in the morning, conversed amicably with the family, showed pictures of his wife and children back home, sentimentally patted the heads of the children and gave them candy, departed and then returned in the afternoon or late at night, and robbed the very same family he had made friends with that morning. The looting was not aimed at the fascist enemy, but caused simply by abject poverty. These communist Russians were so impoverished, so miserably destitute, so completely stripped of everything, that now, said Luce, after 30 years of privation and drudgery, they threw themselves hungrily on everything that fell into their hands. A report conducted by the Swiss Embassy testified to the fact that this plundering included the widespread raping of women. In that report, kept secret for many years, it was estimated that 150,000 out of Hungary's 4.5 million women had been raped. And this does not account for those countless silent victims too afraid or ashamed to report what they had endured. This makes for terrible listening, of course, but... It deserves emphasis here that the Germans were not the only people to be caught in the path of the rampaging Russians. While many Hungarians may have hoped that the Soviets would treat them as a victimised people who would had little choice in the matter, Stalin's policy was to treat Hungary as an enemy nation to whom no quarter should be given. Hungary's war reparations to Moscow provided another bone of contention to Hungarians who perhaps did not believe that it was fair to blame their country so extensively for the experience of the Second World War. Perhaps there was an element of truth to this claim, but Stalin was not interested in fairness. He was interested only in making his western neighbours pay for the damage done to Russia, regardless of the side they had taken. Consider the fact that war reparations were implemented against the Poles and then the Czechs in exactly the same manner, but under the guise of fraternal contributions designed to protect these states against German revanchism. As per the terms of the post-war settlement, indeed, Russia was entitled to take all German-owned property from the Hungarians, and they certainly took more than this. German capital had powered a third of Hungary's industry in the interwar years. Subsequent estimates have valued Hungary's German capital at $1 billion in 1945 monies, an enormous sum for Moscow to arbitrarily appropriate for itself. 200 factories, machinery from 300 others, forced joint ownership of other companies, steel plants, railway construction, shipping up the Danube and coal and oil reserves, all were swept up in the Soviet net of war reparations. A third of Hungary's gold and silver reserves were also taken, and this before an official sum of $200 million was arrived at, which represented the official bill that Hungary would have to pay for its role in the war. Hungary also had to pay $50 million to the victorious nations of Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, among others, monies which were handily appropriated, at least in part, by Moscow in the immediate post-war years. Thanks to the unsustainable cost of these bills, the Hungarian pango collapsed under hyperinflation after 1945. In July 1945, $1 was worth perhaps 1,320 pango. By the same time the following year, $1 could get you 4.6 quadrillion pango. 
a fact which led many psychedelic hotel rooms to start decorating their walls with the insane notes, since it was actually cheaper to do so than buy wallpaper. Between all these privations, the UN report in 1948, estimating the total damage of the whole experience, would have come as little surprise to those Hungarian citizens who had paid much attention. According to that report, some 40% of Hungary's wealth vanished in the period since 1944 to 48. The country was only stabilised economically by the injection of funds provided for by the American return of $40 million worth of gold reserves, which had been smuggled out of the country over 1943-44. to As one historian has cynically judged, it was a good thing these reserves were smuggled out, or the Soviets would have taken them too. A truly striking element of the Soviet arrival and ravaging of the country was the simultaneous appearance on the scene of several hundred so-called Muscovites, the name given to those ethnic Hungarians who had adopted communism and lived abroad in Moscow for much of the preceding years. It was up to these Muscovites to rebuild the People's Republic of Hungary in Stalin's image. But their task was far from easy or safe. As two exiled Hungarian historians later recalled on the Muscovites, the Muscovite's life was by no means enviable. Its leitmotif was fear. A Muscovite was never safe wherever he went, least of all in the Soviet Union. Neither his loyalty nor his long party membership would protect him. He knew that he did not have to even commit a mistake in order to be relieved of his job or to be arrested and tried. Muscovites knew that no such thing as permanent truth existed because no such thing ever existed in the Soviet Union. A Muscovite knew that the truth has many faces and the only thing that concerned him was which face was on top just then. He was fully aware that at all times truth was what the Secretary General or the supreme body of the party held to be truth, and therefore it did not particularly bother him that yesterday's truth had changed by today into a lie. This analysis of the life of the Muscovite rings true for any such Soviet satellite regime after 1945, and especially under the paranoid mania of Stalin. During the last round of purges and show trials between 1948-53, to it was the satellite states that suffered the worst privations, as the concept of truth, and Pravda's communication of it, changed with Stalin's mood that morning. One such individual who knew this all too well was Hungary's designated post-war communist leader, Matyash Rakoshi. On the surface... Matyash Rakoshi did not inspire obedience or much in the way of zeal for a common cause. One Hungarian playwright would later describe Rakoshi in the following hilarious way. A short squat body, as if the creator had been unable to finish his work for abhorrence, the head disproportionately large, topped by an enormous bald dome, and fronted by a pallid bloated face with a sweet and sour smile frozen onto it. Virtually no neck between the high shoulders, so that it was more or less to the observer whether he called him a hunchback or not. Clumsy in movement, with a tendency to flat-footedness, with short, stubby fingers. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When he was far out of earshot, Matyash Rakoshi was simply referred to by many Hungarians as Kopaj Gilkos, bald murderer, or my personal favorite, Sigafej, which translates roughly as asshead. These amusing developments should not lead anyone to underestimate Rakoshi, though. He was an avowed Stalinist, a man who owed absolutely everything to his formidable patron in Moscow, and whose zeal for communism, predictably enough, was matched by his own lust for power and willingness to deal in policies of terrible cruelty in the name of his patron's interests. Rakoshi was in many ways the perfect candidate because he was reliant on Stalin for his power base. Giving little thought to his own popularity, Rakoshi intended to run post-war Hungary like his police state. First, though, Rakoshi would have to depend upon Stalin to create the conditions for his iron dictatorship. As he did elsewhere in post-war Iron Curtain Europe, Stalin moved slowly and methodically to co-opt and then undermine and then take over the vulnerable Eastern democracies. Initial democratic signals, reflecting a trend repeated elsewhere in the emerging bloc, did not bode well for Stalin's ambitions. Hungary's Communist Party received just 17% of the vote in the November 1945 elections. The municipal elections in Budapest provided such an embarrassing result for Moscow that its representative on the ground, a marshal, Voroshilov, punched Matyash Rakoshi in a fit of rage. Fortunately for Rakoshi, the bull-headed Soviet marshal was not dictating Moscow's strategy, and while the results had been a shock, reports from elsewhere in Eastern Europe demonstrated that Stalin would have to work harder to coerce cooperation from the region's communist parties than he had perhaps anticipated. For the moment, the face of Soviet communism had to be all cold smiles as a veneer of cooperation was maintained. The Communist Party moved, symbolically enough, into the old HQ of the Gestapo in Budapest during the summer of 1945 and actually built upon the network established by that terrible institution in the months that followed. Rakoshi maintained, even after the disastrous and embarrassing November elections, that cooperation was to be the order of the day. Unite all forces for reconstruction, was his favourite saying. Another question which needed attention in addition to the political state of affairs was Hungary's curious relationship with its agriculture. The biggest landowner in Europe remained Hungary's Catholic Church, who owned 720,000 hectares, 
and several landowning families, in place for centuries, still clung to their massive estates. Hungarian history reminds us that serfdom was abolished less than a century before the end of the Second World War, following the 1848 revolutions. Yet the same aristocracy who had once enjoyed such benefits from this system of human bondage remained in possession of most of the country's farms. Over half the country's arable land, in fact, remained in the hands of 1% of the population. Determined to change all of this was a plump, cheerful 49-year-old with a walrus moustache, Imre Naj, an expert in agronomy and thoroughly in tune with what Moscow wanted since he had spent much of his years there during a long exile. The act of distributing 2 million hectares between 600,000 peasants was a task enthusiastically taken up by Naj, and he proclaimed the policy a success, acquiring the nickname Land Divider in the process, alongside a popularity which he never truly lost. In light of these changes and the creeping Soviet influence in the background, we might be surprised to note the largely favourable impressions which were sent home from Budapest by foreign observers. One British academic and Eastern European expert was vocal in his beliefs that Hungary had a bright future, writing that, A visitor to Hungary will be surprised by the vigorous intellectual activity displayed both in print and in conversation. In comparison with the mental sterility and haunting fear prevalent in the Balkans, Hungary seemed an oasis of culture and liberty. Since the utter devastation of the last two qualities were on Stalin's to-do list, it is remarkable that even the Hungarians themselves were unable to believe that their destiny was to be tied against their will to Stalin's unrelenting bloc. The vehemently anti-communist Hungarian intellectual, Oskar Yagy, who had emigrated to the United States in 1919, rejected the idea that that what is taking place in Hungary is simply a repetition of what has occurred in the Baltic states, in Bulgaria and in Romania. The demagogy of the Bolsheviks is absent. Communism had become respectable and gentlemanly. Even the criticism of certain governmental measures by the Roman Catholic hierarchy was listened to with respect, and the rejoinder was moderate and tactful. Generally speaking, there is not much talk about communism there today. Yet this illusion of choice and freedom, an illusion which even some Hungarian expats fell for, as well as some native Hungarians, was all part of Stalin's plan. Stalin advised Matyash Rakoshi before he had even returned to Hungary in late 1944 that Don't be grudging with words. Don't scare anyone, but once you gain ground, then move ahead. You must utilise as many people as possible who may be of use to us. Indeed, the utilisation of useful persons would be essential if communism was to exist in any sense in Hungary. One may recall the figures provided in the Cold War crash course, where we noted the minuscule size of the Communist Party in Hungary after the end of the Second World War. The tiny Hungarian Communist Party was thus reliant on the comparatively gargantuan Red Army contingent of 75,000 men garrisoned in Hungary to keep order, armed with the state-of-the-art armoured vehicles and planes to ensure that Hungary stayed liberated, of course. Hungary was also a difficult case for Moscow because the Soviets had few actual carrots which it could offer to the people. While population changes and border adjustments in the likes of Poland, for example, granted a degree of satisfaction 
Romania had been handed the disputed Transylvania region in perpetuity. Hungary's neighbours, even those that collaborated as they had with the Nazis, all seemed to win something, yet Hungary was left shattered, depressed and still dissatisfied with the unfair treaty of Trianon from a generation before. While Rakoshi tried to prize some kind of dowry from Moscow in the months that followed, something the Communist Party could promise the people in return for their support perhaps, it suited Stalin far better to leave the Communists in the lurch and to force them to depend upon him for support. This dependence would ensure that Rakoshi remained one of the most paranoid and sensitive of the Stalinist satellite rulers, and it would characterise his state as one of the most repressive and unhappy, largely because Rakoshi had no other basis upon which to establish his rule than abject terror and the pervasive influence of fear-mongering. It was going to be hard to pretend, after the Russians had given them nothing and taken everything, that these same Russians were somehow the friends of the Hungarians. The message was an impossibly hard sell, without the presence of the Red Army providing a cynically calming balm to the whole rotten experience. This was a fact which Stalin anticipated from the beginning, but which Rakoshi only reluctantly came to accept. It was also no accident that Rakoshi and his other leading men had something else in common that distinguished them from their Hungarian peers. Matyash Rakoshi had been born Matyash Rosenfeld. Until his father had magyarized the family name in the early 1900s, the family's Jewish heritage was plain for all to see. That he could just as easily have billed himself as Matthew Rosenfeld was a fact not lost on Stalin. Not only was Matyash dependent on Stalin for his political support then, but on account of his presence within an ethnic minority, when still viewed with suspicion, Rakoshi was even more reliant on Stalin for anything that came from the Soviet leader's well of mercy. Paradoxically, Rakoshi's Jewish heritage forced him to denounce the activities of Jews with a growing fanaticism as Stalin's own anti-Semitism grew in the late 1940s. Rakoshi was full of contradictions and shortcomings, as Stalin wanted and needed him to be, but one thing Stalin could rely on Rakoshi for was the latter's earnest lust for power. Over 1946 and 47, Matyash Rakoshi set about unravelling the fabric of the Hungarian state and fulfilling the worst nightmares of his political opponents. Installed as deputy prime minister with responsibilities for the policing of the interior, Rakoshi's example is a similar case to many of his Eastern European peers, and the results would also bear identical fruit. By the summer of 1947, Rakoshi was able to lead the communists to victory against his political opponents, who had by then all been terrified or intimidated into submission and inaction. Still though, the communists only won 22% of the vote. It remained to take down the only other opposition party, the Social Democrats. Once presented by Stalin as an ideal means for communists to represent themselves on a legal platform in Hungary's interwar years, the Social Democrats now voted themselves into oblivion during another rigged election, which merged the Social Democrats and communists together as one. To cut a long story short, the process had been far messier and less satisfying than Rakoshi had wanted, but by 1948, the Hungarian communists were able to control the government in the manner that Stalin had always desired. It now remained to be seen what the Soviet leader would do with this power and his Hungarian puppet, now that he had it. 
As was the case everywhere else in the Soviet bloc, Hungary was to be stripped of its identity and recast as a bland clone of Moscow. Stalin ensured that the drab architecture, stifled political discussion and fearful populace were transplanted from Moscow to Budapest, but that was not all that had changed. Rakoshi learned early on that the best way to maintain approval ratings in Stalin's mind was to refrain from moving an inch without first receiving Soviet approval. This was easy enough to do since Soviet advisers and their military attaches never actually left the country. A state of affairs which was necessary, it was said, to maintain communications with the Soviet presence in Austria. The old gymnasium system of education was replaced by the cold, unimaginative Soviet model. Russian was the only foreign language taught to Hungarian students, replacing the traditional German and French. The national flag was also changed, as the Soviet hammer and sickle was superimposed upon the traditional red, white and green tricolour. Public holidays were also brought into line, as the Feast of St. Stephen was cancelled, and even Christmas Day was redefined as Pine Needles Day, to go along with the nauseatingly communist recasting of Santa Claus's Grandfather Frost, a recasting which was replicated across the Soviet bloc. The Hungarian cafes, once the bastion of cultural discourse and identity, were denounced as the last vestiges of the bourgeois system, and any semblance of originality or identity evaporated with them. The experience was deeply wounding for many, understandably since Hungarians imagined themselves as belonging to a proud national group with a great medieval legacy. After 1948, though, they were little more than a disadvantaged colony, an unintelligible member of the same cast of cold, dull actors that together made up the socialist, Marxist, Stalinist ideal. This hurt all the more, recalled a Hungarian student at the time. Having communism thrust down our throats unwillingly was bad enough, terrible, but having so many alien ways imposed on us, and being told that they were superior was a constant insult. Every day the Russians seemed to grind our noses in the fact that they were the masters. We couldn't forgive them. Of course, the reason why so few voices were lifted in opposition was due to the fact that Rakoshi had aped another of the Soviet institutions as well, the secret police. In Hungary, called the State Security Department, translating into the Hungarian, to form the acronym AVO, or AVO, which was what most citizens called it, even while it changed its name a few times. Perhaps predictably considering Rakoshi's precarious position, the AVO became one of the most brutally repressive and notorious secret police iterations in the bloc, controlled utterly by Rakoshi and his increasingly domineering whims. The AVO was known for instilling a new phrase in the Hungarian language, the so-called Belfright, or Schengofraj. This referred to the deep-seated fear of many Hungarian citizens that they would be awoken in the small hours of the night with a ringing of their doorbell as they or a family member were taken away and never seen again. The transformation of Hungarian society from a land of hopefuls into a land of the fearful was as remarkable as it was awful and tragic. Rakoshi gained immense brownie points from Stalin for his achievements, of course, but the Soviet leader's demands ensured that Rakoshi always feared he wasn't doing enough or going far enough to satiate Stalin's insatiable appetite. The AVO formed a vital part of Rakoshi's power base, and AVO agents could be easily distinguished above all by their swagger, 
as they sauntered around the country safe in the knowledge that they were untouchable. They wore blue uniforms with green epaulettes, and many had enjoyed a previous career in Horty's Arrow Cross, as the AVO recruited from among the members of the old secret police to build up the new. The HQ was established at 60 Stalin Avenue, which has since been remodelled into a state-of-the-art museum, and given the appropriate name, the House of Terror. I have it on good authority from my precious few Hungarian friends that it is a must-see attraction in the city, this building where so many Hungarian citizens began their long walk away from freedom. In 1958, Stalin House and the Stalin Avenue upon which it resided would change its name to the Avenue of the People, and this name reflected the change that by 1958, Stalin's name was no longer held in such high esteem as it had once been. Because Stalin's methods went hand in glove with Matyash Rakoshi's, it shouldn't surprise us to note that by 1958, Rakoshi had long since changed his residence from Hungary to Russia. In the next episode, we'll continue our analysis of this terrible time in Hungarian history by asking what changed and how these changes were brought to life when, at the 20th Party Congress, Rakoshi's late master was denounced for the monster that he had been. I hope you'll join me for that, but until then, my name is Zach. This has been episode 9 of 1956, and you are a lovely patron. Thanks for listening. And I'll be seeing you all soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.